today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Another interesting, uh, uh, I guess, addition to the cannabis debate uh, came out yesterday. The Ford government made an announcement then and, and gave up Ontario's monopoly on weed. Remember that it was supposed to be sort of like a division of the LCBO, Ontario's, Ontario Cannabis Corporation, I don't know, something like that. Uh, they were supposed to open 40 stores come October, uh, then I guess take it to about 150 by 2020. Many were complaining that uh, they didn't think how or see how that was going to possibly work or be feasible or, or uh, certainly supplied what they feel is going to be the demand. Uh, and there didn't seem to be a lot of interest in this. Didn't seem to be, we didn't really hear, we heard of like New Brunswick, where they're doing, and Alberta, what they're doing. And it's all been pretty mum, uh, not only with the wind government, but certainly after the election as well. Uh, now, of course, uh, they have made the, uh, the announcement that they're opening up the recreational sale of cannabis to private stores by April 1st and come uh, October 17th, it will be a, it will be available online only. So there won't be the big stores, the LCBO type stores that we initially had thought. Uh, instead, it will be online sales and then uh, given to uh, private industry. Let's bring in Michael Armstrong, PhD, Associate Professor, Goodman School of Business, Brock University, with us now. Michael, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Good afternoon. Surprised at the announcement yesterday. Uh, not particularly. Uh, uh, Premier Ford had uh, kind of signaled he wasn't really happy with the previous plans. Uh, there had been rumors a couple weeks ago that uh, there would be a move to private sector. And probably most importantly, the uh, previous uh, public sector uh, monopoly approach, although had some advantages in concept, uh, had been left in a mess by the uh, previous Liberal government. It didn't seem that uh, under the, the 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 other situation from the past government, it didn't seem as if we were going to be ready by October 17th. There didn't seem to be any discussion with either of these governments uh, on on this moving forward. Did there? I mean, do you think we were up to speed on this? No, uh, I, not at all. Um, way back in April, the Ontario Cannabis Retail Corporation had announced its first uh, four store locations. Uh, there's a little bit of uh, political uh, kerfuffle about the Toronto one, uh, and then everything went quiet after that. Um, there were no other store locations announced. Renovations in those four locations didn't even begin until early July, and there's still been no announcements about uh, contracts with any cannabis growers to have product. Uh, it almost makes me wonder whether perhaps the previous Liberals had ordered uh, the Cannabis Corporation just to freeze everything until after the election, uh, maybe being uh, to avoid scaring any other voters off, which uh, obviously didn't help them. So what is going to happen to those stores that have already been started? I guess those are scrapped now, correct? It sounds like they're going to be scrapped. I mean, the announcement yesterday uh, was sort of at the uh, high-level concept. It didn't get much into detail. Um in in one sense, it would have been nice to have just gone ahead. You've got the four stores underway. Go ahead. But uh, given that they didn't really want to be in that business in the first place, uh, it's probably cleaner and simpler just to uh, to scrap those four. Um, plus, as I said, they don't they don't actually have any supply contracts signed, so it's not entirely clear they'll have product to sell. Um, so I think that's going to be one of the first uh, priorities. Um, for the Ontario Cannabis Retail Corporation, OCROC, if we if we start calling it that, so that uh, is still that is still an organization. It's just not represented by Storefront anymore. That's right. It will still handle all the wholesaling distribution, much as LCBO supplies uh, alcohol 
to uh, right. pubs and uh, restaurants. Ockrock will still supply uh, cannabis to all the retailers, and Ockrock will still run the, uh, as you mentioned, the the online sales. Um, so one of their priorities uh, had better be to uh, sign some supply contracts, uh, and of course they have to get their website up. Although since they've uh, they've decided to use the Shopify software, that uh, presumably is not too difficult a challenge in the next couple months. So how if they didn't have supply for the stores, how are they going to have supply for a mail order system? Well. Um, they're going to have to cross their fingers and hope there's still enough suppliers out there ready. Um, uh, of course, the bigger corporations like Canopy Growth uh, have probably been uh, anticipating a contract, so it's not like they're going to be caught flat-footed. Right. Uh, in fact, Canopy Growth uh, apparently has something like 15 tons of cannabis uh, stored away ready for their retailing to begin. Um, and since they only have to supply their website now uh, in October, that actually might be a good thing. Uh, there are suggestions that there might be a shortage of cannabis when all the provinces suddenly begin retailing in October. So only having to supply the retail website and leaving the stores until spring uh, might actually work well on that front. Does this system appear to be better than the other system? Well, there's nothing wrong in concept with having a uh, public sector uh, retailer. Uh, It's probably better for... uh, uh, public policy goals like uh, educating consumers, harm reduction, that kind of thing. But the uh, the particular implementation was a mess. Uh, as you'd mentioned, they were only planning 40 stores in the first year, 150 uh, by 2020. Uh, for comparison, Saskatchewan has already awarded 51 retail licenses and only has just over a million people. Uh, Alberta is on track to have uh, several hundred licenses this year. So 50, uh, 40 or even 150 for uh, 14 million people in Ontario was just not enough. And then, as we mentioned, you know, even with that plan, it was way behind schedule. Hmm. So switching to uh, a private sector, I think, is definitely an improvement that way. How do people like the LCBO or uh, OCRA or the unions feel? I mean, at one time, this was going to roll out by the time it was finished as, you know, as I'm guessing, as many stores as you would see LCBO. Uh, this completely changes that model, that monopoly. Uh, your thoughts on that? Well, uh, I, I'm sure the uh, public sector union is, is not happy that it's going to be uh, missing out on those extra jobs. On the other hand, the uh, private sector will be very happy to get the business. Uh, people who are uh, people who had interviewed for the Ockrock retail stores will probably quite happily go and interview for uh, private sector stores. Um, depending on what the uh, Ford government ultimately decides to do on that front, uh, I could. Sorry, go back and I say could, that. Say that again, Michael. The people that were going to run the uh, the Okra stores, I thought that was all government run. Uh, well, it wasn't really going to run, uh, but uh, apparently they had uh, contracted with a couple um, human resource companies to do some of their recruiting. Oh, I see. And there was something like thirty-seven. I think that was one of the numbers. Uh, right. Store managers who. Been tentatively uh, picked out. Well, whatever their qualifications, I, I suspect they can find jobs in the uh, private sector fairly easily. So, when this is all done and complete, and, and maybe we don't know this information, what we'll have is a series of private dispensaries that have been licensed by the government, or you can buy it via online and, and delivered through Canada Post, I guess, through the government directly. 
Yes. Um, so the the online side, we have a pretty good idea what's going to happen. I mean, the federal government already does that with medical cannabis. Right. Uh, the retail side, it depends on the approach the government wants to take. If they uh, if they do what's uh, happening in Alberta, uh, Alberta was planning uh, over 200 stores the first year, but they've actually got over 400 applications for licenses to already by April. Hmm. Uh, so I could easily see Ontario having a thousand retail stores uh, in the first year, if the if the government decides to open it up that way. This seems way more cost effective. Am I missing something? Um, whether it's cost effective or not uh, is going to depend how things work out. Um, what what will definitely be is much better at serving the Ontario consumer. Uh, and therefore much better at uh, competing with the established black market. Because that's, that's always been one of the uh, federal government's main policy goals. Uh, Prime Minister Trudeau always likes to talk about uh, he wants people to buy from a legal source, not support organized crime, that kind of thing. Well, to do that, it's like going into any other kind of uh, business competition. You have to compete against an established uh, retailer, you have to offer uh, service. You have to offer convenience. Um, Forty stores is not very convenient. That's about as convenient as a uh, Costco warehouse stores. Uh, 150 is still only about convenient as uh, Walmart. So as, as you say, if we're looking at you know convenience, we should at least have as many LCBO outlets or even as many as uh, you might see in terms of bars and restaurants. So a 1,000 stores or something at order of magnitude uh, that will be much better at uh, that kind of competition. Uh, a, a caller asking, and, and you did touch on this, uh, people who have already been uh, hired to work at the provincial stores and, and some who have, I guess, quit other jobs to do so, uh, where do they stand? And But as you mentioned, through HR departments, those will be passed on to other establishments once it becomes private, correct? Yeah. Um, I mean, whatever... We were only talking about 40 stores. I doubt if any of those people had actually uh, had binding contract right. signed. I mean, we're still several months away uh, from the opening date. So given the, the much larger number of private sector stores that are likely to open up, I suspect those people, uh, if anything, they'll be in high demand. Do you think this was done because the government just wasn't ready for the bricks-and-mortar uh, units uh, by October 17th, or that they weren't really for this anyway? And, and, and again, where, um, two questions here. Where does this leave alcohol? Can we see the same sort of privatization there? Well, in terms of motivation, that's a, that might be a better question for my uh, political science colleagues, but I think, uh, I think it's probably a combination of two factors. One, you know, we have a progressive conservative government, uh, with a premier in particular who really aren't big on public sector, um, well, anything in some sense, uh, and then combine that with a previous plan that was kind of a mess anyway, uh, it's a very easy for them to say, hey, we don't like this conceptually. It's not doesn't look like it's going to work in practice anyway. Let's toss it out uh, and go private sector. Whereas, uh, you know, the LCBO, um, although it has its faults, it actually is a pretty well-run organization in some ways. It mm-hmm. actually has pretty good customer service. Um, if there were private sector retailers as well, uh, that could offer other advantages. But, you know, overturning that much more established right. organization is a much bigger right. uh, decision to make. Um, so that'll be interesting to see, though.
So, uh, in uh, obviously October seventeenth, online sales only. April, uh, talking about having uh, private distributors open. How is this going to happen? How is this going to roll out October seventeenth? How do we? Uh, does this not make Canada Post a target? They're basically, you know, the delivery person for all of this. Uh, how do we make sure that it gets into the right hands? The age of the of the purchaser, that sort of thing. Uh, well, part of the answer to that, again, is uh, whatever the federal government is doing right now with medical cannabis, um, presumably that's what Ontario will adopt in terms of delivery procedures, verification. Um, so, like, as a Canada Post guy come to your door and say, here's your bag of weed? Uh, well, since I have never ordered, I, I don't have a direct experience. but Can't I Can't say I have either. That's why I'm asking. <laughs> I believe they show up at your door, but they ask you for uh, identification. Yeah. Uh, when you initially place the order, you have to have some kind of uh, confirmation. You can't just, you know, right. show, go to the website and say, hey, I'd like a bag of weed delivered. Yeah. Um, I do, I, I so don't what happens if you're not home? Does that it end up at the post office and just like signing for your Amazon package? you got to go into the local post office to pick it up? I suspect it will. Hmm. Um, now, is, you know, that, right is now, theft an issue then? I mean, I guess, well, is, you know, is a bag of weed any more expensive than the, your unit that's getting sent through Amazon? Well, I, that's exactly what I was going to say is, you know, for us right now, it's a real novel thing. Okay, here's these drugs. They're going to be sitting in parcels. But, you know, that once it's legalized, that won't be an unusual no. rare. Uh, yeah, it'd still be worth some money, but uh, 30 grams is the... Uh, maximum you're allowed to buy. If it's 10 grams, that's $300 worth of uh, pot. Um, there's lots of things you buy on Amazon that are more expensive than $300. Yeah. And if somebody is just trying to get some jugs, well, they can order it themselves. Hmm. Or if you're in uh, someplace like Ottawa, you go across the river to uh, Hull, or sorry, Gatineau, and uh, go to the uh, Quebec government store that's supposed to be open there in October. Although uh, they're only aiming for 20 stores, so that one store in Gatineau, I think, might be pretty busy. Boy, that's going to be fascinating. What a what a change of tide between the relationship between Ontario and Quebec. It used to be the other way around. Everybody went over to uh, Quebec. Now it's uh, for alcohol anyway, and now it's the other way around. It will, it will appear. Uh, what about those uh, distributors, those sellers that are out there now running in this gray area, which is actually a, an illegal store? Um, what about them between now and October? Do they stand any chance of getting a legal operation? Well, that's one of those many details the provincial government has to sort out between now and then. Uh, they talked about having public consultations. Uh, I think their initial comments, if I remember right from the Attorney General, you know, he's basically saying just say no. Um, so if you're in a legal operation right now and you're operating in Hamilton, and there's quite a few, um, uh, if, if you keep your doors open between now and October 17th, you run the risk of losing this and not being able to... Uh, to get onto it once it's once it's legalized, uh, I think that's absolutely a risk. Um, I the uh, only problem so far that's actually said they're open to having some of these stores transition is British Columbia. Hmm. Um, all the other provinces are officially saying no. Um, although uh, I suspect some of these stores and it might do is uh, try and play by the new game, put in a license application. Uh, and then sort of, you know, April 1st, change the uh, name on their sign uh, right. and switch over from being black market to uh, legit. Hmm. Uh, now, if they have criminal records uh, that they've earned between now and then, 
that might complicate things, although, you know, there's uh, lawyers might be working on tricks around that. We'll see. Uh, still as much money to be made via taxation uh, uh, through this method of distribution. Um, I don't think, yes, I think that won't change. In fact, uh, potentially higher because with more stores, you'll have more sales. More sales means more sales revenue. Plus you don't own them and you don't have to run them. Upfront costs much cheaper for the province because yeah. you don't have to own the stores. You don't have to renovate them. You don't have to go through the uh, expenses of hiring. So the upfront cost is much better for the province. The long run uh, revenue, uh, probably about the same. Although in the short term, at least, this isn't going to be a money maker for the for the provincial government. Um, they're talking about pricing. Although I don't think it's, their prices will be as low as they really need to be. They'll be low enough that they won't be making much money. Um, so, Michael, the the alcohol industry cannot be happy about this, especially when you know we're talking about taxation: fifty nine percent per bottle of beer, seventy percent per can. Uh, you know, you wonder how this or will it eat into their profits at all? And are they on? Are they going to want to be on a level playing field, even though the two products are different? Uh, you're right to point out that connection. Um, alcohol sales, beer sales, and such uh, have been declining, uh, at least in certain kinds of uh, product. Um, you know, Doug Ford may uh, be nostalgic for the gold days of Bucca beer, but, you know, that's that's long gone. Um, and that's really, but, and getting back to that really quickly, uh, uh, the Bucca beer thing, that's the price in which the beer store can sell the product for, and currently it's at 125 and there's very few, if any, brewers that are selling at that price anyway. Yes. Yeah, so that, so that this isn't going to change. This isn't going to change the price of our beer, is it? Uh, I doubt it will. Uh, in fact, a lot of the independent breweries who uh, have higher price, higher quality product have you know, publicly said, no, this is silly. We're not doing this. Um, the, you know, inflation, uh, just since uh, I think it was 2008 was when the buck of beer went out, disappeared, uh, has gone up 16%. So even if you'd kept it, it would now be a, a buck 16 a beer. Uh, but in terms of what the breweries are doing, well, August 1st, uh, Molson Coors announced it was uh, partnering with one of the Quebec uh, cannabis growers to develop some cannabis beverages. Uh, Constellation Brands, which uh, among other things owns a number of Niagara area wineries, uh, several months ago um, bought uh, 10% of one of the bigger cannabis producers in Canada. So the alcohol uh, beverage makers are seeing this as uh, on the one hand, it's competition, but it's also a new potential market um, for cannabis uh, beers. Or, uh, cannabis can you put cannabis? In, can you put cannabis in an alcohol product, though? I mean, from what I've seen, is they're trying to keep these two products as far apart as possible. Or would this be a different beverage with no alcohol in it, but but cannabis? Um, all the plans I've seen have, have been it would be a different beverage. Uh, either um, the most common plans seem to be a beer-like substance, or more likely a cooler, uh, that instead of having some alcohol added would have some of the THC added. Right. That's the ingredient that gives people a high. Uh, but there wouldn't be alcohol one... and THC in the product, would there? So, sorry? There wouldn't be alcohol and THC in no, the product, would there? No, uh, just the THC. Right, right. Uh, I did see one, uh, one craft brewer was trying to come up with a beer made from cannabis plants. Uh, I'm not sure how that's going to work out. Um, but I'd, I'd see the, something more like a cooler kind of market, 
uh, something pleasant tasting, uh, whether sweet or savory or something else, but with the THC added. Um, basically having the drink be a delivery method for the drug. Hmm. I think wow. Interesting times. Michael Armstrong has been with his Ph.D. associate professor, Goodman School of Business, Brock University, talking about the Ford government making the announcement yesterday that uh, rather than the storefronts, that it was selling online and will open the storefronts to the private sector. Michael, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. It's fun to chat. I'm sure we'll have another opportunity later. I'm sure we will. Thank you so much. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We were just talking uh, in the last segment, the Ford government making the announcement yesterday to uh, give up Ontario's monopoly on weed. Won't do it on booze, but certainly will on weed. Uh, and by that, I mean uh, no, uh, no more of the LCBO-type outlets for uh, cannabis recreational cannabis sales. Instead, uh, if you want to get it October 17th and beyond through the government, you have to do it through their online site. Mail order coming to you via Canada Post, just like your Amazon package. So that's what's happening October 17th. April 1st, the government will then open it up to the private sector and allow distribution uh, through the private sector, but licensed through uh, the Ontario Retail Cannabis Association. So lots of chat about that and what's going to happen in the fall. A recent StatsCan report revealed that one in seven cannabis-consuming drivers drives high. Uh, Interestingly uh, enough, we found a a fascinating article on thedrive.com. Well, uh, and it's entitled, uh, Driving While High Was a Personal Low. In Pot's Golden Age, driving high is treated as no big deal, but take it from a former and regretful stone driver, it's stupid and dangerous. This is penned by Neil Pollock, who, of course, is a uh, author of 10 best-selling books, fiction and nonfiction, contributor to various magazines, a three-time Jeopardy champion. Oh, well, that's worth a discussion right there. Uh, Neil, thanks very much for taking the time to join us. We appreciate it. Uh, good morning, Scott. Did, did I just hear you say that the uh, Ontario government is going to be sending marijuana through the mail? Yeah, they already do it now with recre- uh, with medical marijuana. You can now buy medical marijuana in Canada, and it's all done through Canada Post. Yes, much Great like your world. All right, much like yeah. your much like your Amazon packages. Same sort of thing. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah, and what's recently happened now is instead of it being uh, sold in a government-run organization like the Arbuz is in Ontario, and cannabis was going to be the same way, now it's mail order to the government and uh, opening up private sector stores come April 1st. All right, well... Good luck with that. All right. So, what are your thoughts? Uh, why pen this? Why pen this article while uh, driving while high was a personal low? Well, um, I was a stoner for 25 years, and uh, like a lot of people who consume a lot of marijuana, I sort of told myself uh, that it was that uh, there was nothing wrong with it, and there isn't. I mean, there's nothing wrong with smoking marijuana, just like there's. Nothing wrong with drinking if you can, you know, control your usage and do it in moderation. But like a lot of people who smoke a lot of pot, I drove high because I was high all the time and I drove a lot. So, um, you know, now that I, you know, I've been sober for a a while now and it just sort of dawned on me that, that this was really reckless and dangerous. And I don't know, I just feel like with marijuana becoming more publicly acceptable and, and legal, both in Canada and the United States, I felt like I should say something. Why did you think you could drive high? 
And I mean, so you, you know, you're living in Texas, right? How available is marijuana in Texas? Well, mar- marijuana is, is, I mean, it, I live in Austin, Texas, in the home of Willie Nelson. So yeah. there's, there's marijuana. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, law, there's always been pot in Texas. It's popular there, but it is very illegal. But, I, but a lot of the time I, I'm ta- I was talking about in the piece, I lived in Los Angeles, and I had a medical marijuana card. So, you know, it, it was real. It, it was everywhere. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I guess, um, so why did I think it was okay to drive, drive high? I don't know. I mean, because that's kind of what stoners say is that, you know, it's safer than alcohol. You're actually more careful. You don't speed. You know, you're more paranoid. These are the kinds of things that stone drivers tell themselves. And, it's, and, and that was a lot of the reaction I got after the article. Not like, oh, yes, you're right, but more like, Stay out of my business. Hmm. It's fine. Don't, everything's fine. I've been driving high for twenty years. A lot of lot of reaction like that, which is kind of surprising, honestly. You know? So, so why did a- why did your why did your view of this change? Like, obviously, you quit. So then, what? Why would that change the situation? How come your opinion changed of this? Well, I mean, I I entered recovery. Right, I started doing a marijuana twelve step program, and so. When you do that, you got to like sort of examine your behaviors and the, the damage you did and the dangers you put people in. And, you know, and so I, I had to think about driving while high because that was something I did a lot. And it's, it's, it's foolish. I mean, marijuana is, is great, but it's also a drug. And, um, you know, it impairs your reaction time. It impairs your judgment. It's, you can become easily distracted. It, it's, you know, it's dangerous. And that number you... Um, you quoted one out of seven drivers uh, admitted to, to driving while high. I mean, that's that's a lot of people, you know, and that's, that's a lot of people on drugs out there on the road. I know there's always a lot of people on drugs and drinking out there on the road, but I just feel like with marijuana's you know greater acceptance, it it's going to become driving while high will become more common. Do you think driving high is more acceptable than driving drunk? Absolutely. Absolutely it is. I mean, certainly, I don't think anyone who drinks has the delusion. I mean, sometimes when they're drunk, they, they, they get in this bubble and think that they're fine. But no one, you're not going to find very many people who are rationally going to defend driving drunk. Mm. Um, but you're going to find a lot of people who will defend driving while stoned. Because, first of all, you know, it, it's hard to gauge. Different pe- marijuana affects different people in different ways. Uh, different strains have different levels of strength, and also different strains have different effects. You know, some are really euphoric, some are real, um, uh, some are you know, bring you down. Um, so it, it's hard to gauge exactly what a level, how stoned you are, and how much you're actually impaired. It varies greatly. Hmm. So it's, when, it's a complicated topic. When, Neil, when during your recovery did you realize this or have this epiphany about driving? Oh, I mean, a few months in, uh, you know, you just you kind of. I had to deal with some other stuff first, and it just kind of gradually dawned on me, like, man, I was driving around high for a long time, <laughs> you know. And I'm lucky. I'm lucky. I didn't. I didn't get a ticket. I didn't get in an accident. I didn't. Um, didn't do anything. I didn't do any damage, really. And 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 that. But that is. Um, but that's a, that's luck. Not um, not a testament to the fact that driving stoned is safe. So why did you stop, Neil? Oh, I just I, I don't know. I mean, I was just I was just it was really starting to 
uh, weigh on my work. It was really starting to weigh on my personal relationships. Um, I, you know, I, I, I lost a parent and I, I kind of, I just, I, instead of grieving normally, I just did a lot of drugs and, you know, I mean, I just, I just, uh, I kind of flatlined. It stopped being fun and it, it just started being way more of a crutch and, and I just, I had to quit or else it, things were not going to go well. Did it lead to other drugs, uh, alcohol abuse and such? No, no, no. I, I, I did, um. You know, I, I was maybe a little bit uh, obsessive about my poker playing. Hmm. Um, that may, you know, that that may have been a, sort of a co-addiction, as they say. But no, I've never been a, a heavy drinker, and um, I have never, um, have never abused other drugs. You know, so that's the thing about marijuana, right? It's like it's something you can do for a long time, and because you don't even have to smoke it anymore, there's not even that that risk of damage to the lungs. You can vaporize, you can eat it. Um, you know, it has, it should be legal. It has a lot of medical uses. It really helps a lot of people. Um, and you know, if you can control your use, it's a lot of fun. So, you know, it's, it's, so I was able to do it for a long time, um, and function pretty well because it doesn't, you know, it's not, it's not alcohol. Like if I was drinking like for 25 years, like I was smoking pot, I probably wouldn't be here talking to you. Hmm. Uh, you know, you talk to so many people, uh, especially those on the pro side of all of this, and they say that it's not addictive, that it's, uh, so, so why couldn't you control usage and had to enter a 12 step program? Well, that's a good question. I mean, it's not, a, it's not, marijuana is not, you know, physically addictive, like say, like opioid, right. or cocaine or alcohol or nicotine. Um, but it, you know, it definitely, you know, if you have a, Addiction isn't always about the uh, the substance, you know. It's you know, some, if you have a compulsive personality, if mm-hmm. you're, you know, dealing with unresolved psychological issues, you know, you can compulsively use anything—food, sex, all yeah. manner of drugs, alcohol, gambling, shopping. You know, there's there's lots of, there's lots of things that people can sort of ways people can kind of uh, you know wreck their lives, right? And uh, you know, marijuana was just kind of my. Uh, my substance of choice, I guess. And you had a medical card to consume this intact, or this was in Los Angeles, correct? In Los Angeles, right. yeah. There's no, no, there's no, um, no medical cards in Texas. It's very limited. You have to be a, a child with intractable epilepsy, and then you can only get CBD strains, and it, it's very, it's extremely limited in Texas. Um, but you know, this, yeah, this was a problem before, and you know, and they say that marijuana is not addictive, but then again, um. You know, studies show that nine, ten percent of adult users are addicted to it, and the, the percentage is a lot higher with teenagers. So it's there, and I and I just feel like you know, I mean, I'm not I'm not trying to tell people not to do it because again, you know, that there, a lot of people can do it and not be addicted, and it should be legal. But it's a you know, it's going to be a growing problem as it becomes more available, and uh, you know, and. Certainly the, laws, certainly the laws in Canada are opening up. Legalization of recreational, already has, we already have legalized medical use, uh, yeah. recreational use by October 17th. What's life like in the U.S. around this? Because I think there was U.S. states that were ahead of us on this. Oh, yeah. Well, it's legal like that in California, yeah. in Nevada, in, in Washington, in Oregon, and in Colorado, a few other states. Um, what's life like? I mean... It's changed. The culture's changed a lot, right? I mean, 
you know, there's a, there's a cooking with marijuana show on Netflix. There are, <laughs> you know, I, I attended in Oregon. I went to a, a, like a marijuana potluck. Mm-hmm. I, um, because I was reporting on this, I was writing for the Denver Post's marijuana site. I went to a ganja yoga workshop in California. I, um, stayed at a bud and breakfast in Colorado, you know, so it's a bud and breakfast. Yeah. It's basically <laughs> like there's, when you wake up in the morning, there's a full breakfast and a marijuana buffet awaiting yeah. you. Wow. Um, you know, and this is, and there's marijuana tourism there. There aren't clubs and bars like there are in Amsterdam yet, but that's at some point, some state is going to, um, is going to hop over the line and start doing that. I went to one in Portland that was sort of a social service place that also had a, a dab bar where you could just, you know, basically do marijuana crack all day and just, you know, and just sit there stone. And, you know, it's coming, it's coming to, uh, to a city near you. And, uh, I don't know, it, 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 it's, it's a major cultural shift. And, you know, I wish that I didn't have a problem with it because it's kind of fun, you know, hmm. but, so does it scare you that it's becoming so much more accepted uh, in our country and certainly in yours? Well, I don't know. I mean, you know, it's no scarier than alcohol being legal. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, but the alcohol being legal has its consequences, too. You know, and alcohol, not, not everything involving alcohol is a, you know, is, is a day at the beach. And, you know, it's ruined right. a lot of lives as well as provided a lot of enjoyment for people. So I think, I think it's, you just kind of have to put it on that level. I mean, I don't think that legalized marijuana is um, going to corrupt the youth any more than they're already corrupted. I don't think it's going to – I think it's going to – it has a lot of benefits. It's medical benefits. It has economic benefits. But I just want – you know, I'm on the other side, hopefully for good, and I would just want to, like, I don't know, just – are you worried that careful. are you worried that you might slip back considering it is so readily available? Not like it wasn't before, I guess, but you know. Yeah, it's like well, it's like you know, ask an, ask an alcoholic if yeah. they're, you know if they're worried about you sure. know, taking a drink. I mean, it's one you know, it's one day at a time, basically. Especially, I mean, living in Texas, I can more or less avoid it unless I go see a, a concert or you know, sometimes I go to parties and people are smoking weed. You know, it's not. It's not like walking into a bar, but right. it will become that way. And I just, you know, it's just, you know, you just have to like try to wake up every day and you know not not get stoned. So uh, you're a three time Jeopardy champion. Were you high yes. on the show? No, you know, I, that was the, the only other time I quit. I, I took two months before uh, I went on Jeopardy. I took two months off to study, um, and uh, and then I, I always said that if I won ten games, I would I would I would pop a gummy bear and be high for the eleventh. But I, I didn't get that. Most people don't get that far. There's only been like a dozen players who've ever won ten games, so that wasn't an issue. Hmm. Um, and I'm glad I didn't have to test that, frankly. Yeah, and I mean my head's a lot clearer, you know, and I still do competitive trivia. And since I sobered up, I've you know I've been I've been better. I've been my memory I'm retaining more. I'm you know. And I'm just less, less spacey, you know? I remember listening to an interview with Neil Young, and uh, he was saying just recently, and man, he must be in his 70s now, uh, yeah. that he gave up pot. And uh, the reason he did is because he said he was high for so long, he just couldn't remember what it was like not to be. Sure. What, uh, especially with something like, you know, in, in what you're doing and your work and such, I mean, do you notice a difference? Do you notice, uh, mm. do, you, do you notice a difference? 
I mean, and how do and how do you deal with those anxieties or whatever it was that 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 took you there? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, my my life has been been good since I stopped. You know, I mean, I'm still. I don't know if I'm. I'm not maybe having as many wacky ideas, but I'm also not as um, erratic. So you know, I've I've, I've been just. I, I've been perfectly productive, and you know I'm still able to find things amusing. And uh, you know I I also I'm a I'm not I'm not Neil Young, but I'm I'm a musician too, and I've been able to you know work with my band and have a good time. And I don't know I mean everything everything seems fine on the other side. Hmm. Response to this column that you have in the Drive dot com. What's that? What was the response that you got oh, from this column yeah. in the Drive dot com? Yeah, well, you know, most of, I didn't get any emails off of it. Most of most of the responses were on the Facebook page, and they were all just like, "Shut up, you're weak," you know. Stop telling us what to do, you know. Really, <laughs> particularly nice. Well, yeah, I mean, in general, the the audiences for for um, it, when when you're working for the automotive press aren't they're not exactly the. Uh, it's, not, it's not like I was writing for a recovery website, you know? right? They're not, they're not, it wasn't a touchy feel. They're not a touchy right. feely crowd. They're mostly concerned with, you know, engines um, yeah, yeah. And, and, and personal liberties. Um, so, you know, there, 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 you know, there wasn't a lot of empathy there, but I didn't, I, I, I've been writing about cars for a while, so I didn't really expect that. You know, I just wanted to put it out there, um, put down a marker, and, uh, and just, uh, I felt like it was something that had to be said. So, you know, I, I, I don't care if a bunch of, you know, cranky gearheads didn't like it. <laughs> All right, and you can find it on thedrive.com. Driving well high. Yep, the driving high, driving well high was a personal low, and the author is Neil Pollock. Of course, you can go to neilpollock.com and find out more about Neil and what he's doing. Neil, thanks so much for the time and the candor. Much appreciated. Yeah, I thank you, Scott. I appreciate it. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We have talked a lot about the new sex ed curriculum in uh, Ontario, which uh, of course has become or became a flashpoint during uh, the last election campaign. Having two kids at 16 and 11, I uh, wholeheartedly support the new sex ed curriculum. Uh, These kids are exposed to things that you and I were never exposed to and uh, things that you and I cannot explain simply because it's not our world, uh, whether it's cyberbullying, whether it's gender issues, whether it, mixed marriages, what have you. Uh, it's simply a different world now than when you and I grew up. And this, when it comes to uh, technology, it's not a case of experience and knowledge wins as it normally does with the older generation. The kids know more than we do. It's as simple as that. Therefore, they need to be taught uh, what is the life and times of, of 2018, not 1998, not, teen, not 1988 or 78 for that matter. The Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario, who you know I'm not necessarily a big fan of, told members at its annual meeting yesterday that they denounced Doug Ford's uh, vow to revert to the old sex ed curriculum come this September. They're referring to the move as irresponsible and that they will defend any teacher who sticks to the new curriculum. Of course, uh, the Ford government has said they're going to rely on the old curriculum until they do further study on this and consult with parents and teachers and such, which the past government said they have already done. So will we end up with anything different, anything new with all of this delay? And 
when will we see the new curriculum? What's going to be the change? Let's bring in Jen, uh, Jen Gilbert, Associate Professor, Faculty of Education, York University. She is with us now. Jen, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Uh, thanks for having me. So do teachers know what they should be teaching in sex ed class come this September? I mean, is there confusion from year to year? Well, there is a lot of confusion this year, isn't there? <laughs> I mean, I don't think, I think they um, feel supported by their boards, by ETFO now, but I think they're still waiting for the Ministry of Education to offer them more guidance about what they imagine the year is supposed to look like. So when is this coming down? When will, uh, obviously the current government says that uh, there's more consultation needed. Any idea when we will see the, because I guess now this, the, the new one is 2015, so it's probably already outdated. Um, what, wh- when's the new one coming down the chute? Do we know? Yeah, I don't. Do you? No. I think that's the, I think this is one of the major problems is that this curriculum has been pulled and, you know, with this idea that we're going to revert back to the 1998 curriculum, but who even has access to that curriculum anymore? So it's put teachers in a really difficult position. Uh, well, the new one was in at 2015. Is it that hard to go back to the old one? Well, it's, you know, they, they didn't have them all online in the same way in 1998 as they do now with 2015. So it's, you know, there's the less, you know, they it used to be that there were sort of lessons built around the curriculum. Those are supposedly forthcoming from the Ministry of Education to support the implementation of this older curriculum, but nothing has happened, and teachers are getting very mixed messages. The boards are supporting them. They're supposed to incorporate these issues in other parts of the curriculum. Um, I think the decision by ESFO to kind of stand behind teachers is sort of the first time they felt like, okay, someone's got our back as professionals who are responsible for delivering a curriculum that, you know, no one really even knows where it is. Hmm. Um, is there that much, well, do we know? Do we know what's going to be changed, what is going to be removed, what they don't like? Um, uh, is there going to be much different in the new one to the old new one? To be honest, um, you know, they, they pulled the curriculum so they could have another round of consultation. So that's what's supposed to happen in the fall. I don't think that, you know, overwhelmingly parents support comprehensive sex education, just as you did in your preamble today. Most parents feel that this is what they want for their children in schools, and study after study has proved that. So I don't think when a new curriculum is written, it's actually going to look that different from the current curriculum. But it's just a political uh, you know, sideshow, really, mm. pulling the curriculum to then, you know, reintroduce a curriculum that probably ends up looking a lot like it does now. Do you think, uh, well, what do you think the new one will look like? Do you think it will be just a milder version with perhaps the use of less terms? I mean, how, again, at the end of the day, the problems are still there. Uh, you know, we, we still have to deal, deal with the LGBTQ community. We still have to deal with cyberbullying. We still have to, to deal with, uh, with abuse. So really, what's, what is there to change? I, you know, I have no idea. I think, you know, as someone, I like, I know the curriculum quite well, and I know people get really worked up over it. But if you look at the document itself, it's very straightforward. It's kind of boring. You know, it's not this salacious, you know, document that's getting, it, it really is very straightforward. It's written for teachers. It's written to help them have conversations with their students at a 
the age-appropriate time. And, the, and all, each of the issues that have sort of people have gotten worked up over, are you, is that the one you're going to pull out? Like, I mean, mm. are you not going to talk about gender identity? Are you not going to talk about online um, life? Are you not going to talk about consent? I just can't imagine that the government would pull these topics out of the curriculum. So obviously you're well-versed in the new and the old. What is the vast, what's the great difference? Is there that much of a difference? I think the huge difference is around the content because, you know, as lots of people have been talking about online and in shows like this, you know, there wasn't marriage equality. There wasn't people didn't have access to cell phones in the same way. People weren't online in the same way. The whole idea about consent that's been really important, I think, in schools wasn't really a topic in 1998. So there's all these ways in which young people's lives have kind of moved in different directions because of their access to technology and and new rights and responsibilities. And the the, the new curriculum really does try and Um, meet them there, even though it's still, as you say, a little bit behind young people. They're always ahead of us. The 1998 curriculum, it doesn't mention, you know, LGBT anything. So um, I think that's to go back to that curriculum is a real slap in the face and just that frankly, a really cruel gesture, even if it's just a political gesture. And it really doesn't keep up with the laws of the land. I mean, it really doesn't keep up with the society that we now have. No, it doesn't. And as you know, I mean, there's the human rights case has just been launched. And Mm -hmm. there's lots of I I haven't heard. There's just been so much pushback against this particular decision from all sorts of people, from the school boards, from nurses, from teachers, from parent groups. I mean, I just it just seems so, so wrongheaded. You talked about uh, the human rights case that's being being brought forward by uh, families of uh, LGBTQ members. Uh, with that and the pushback that you're talking about from just parents like me, um, do you think this will speed up this process? Do you think that there's pressure for them to get this done sooner rather than later? I think so. I think that, you know, with the, the school year starting in a couple of weeks, our minds sort of turn to the education and I think this is a really good time for parents and, and community groups to keep up the pressure on the on the government because, you know, once once teachers head into the classroom, they're like, if you know teachers, they're super super busy. It's hard. You they want to plan ahead, and yeah. that they don't know what they're supposed to do is really a huge professional problem for them because they're. They're trying to provide the best education they can for the students in their class, and they need the support. I've got a great idea here, Jen. Uh, For the time period, the gray area between the two curriculums, perhaps we should let the students teach the course, because they probably know more (laughs) than anyone else does. I think you're probably right. Maybe just have an open class. Yeah, Um, there you go. uh, One of the issues was was age appropriateness, uh, obviously reflecting the age in which these topics are introduced. Your thoughts on that is, and I'm playing devil's advocate here, is there, is that an, is that an issue we should be readdressing? Like, okay, maybe we should talk about this, but maybe not at this age. What's the advantage of, of age appropriateness here? Well, I think that in, in sex ed, we have this worry that if we talk about something. They'll all want to have it. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Like a kind of contagious idea. Like if I say the word sex, all of a sudden you'll be like, oh, that's, I never thought of that before. But the truth is, I mean, we want to prepare young people for the realities that they'll meet. So we have to talk to them, not too soon, but we have to we have to anticipate where they're developing. 
And it means that, you know, we're having to talk about difficult issues. And, 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 you know, in a grade three class, there's kids that are really young and there's kids that are more mature. And you have and to sp- find- And especially from different backgrounds and such. Yeah. And I think that this curriculum, I mean, I know where people have sort of latched on to, to um, you know, thinking it's not age appropriate, say the gender identity in grade three. But, you know, lots of kids who are eight years old are thinking about these things for themselves yeah. or have friends who are or have siblings who are. So I don't think it's age. I don't think that I think it's a sort of a bogeyman, the age appropriate what, what about the argument, it's up to the parents, it's up to the parents to, uh, to teach that, you know, I know it all, I'm teaching my kid, although as I've said in the, said in the preamble, when it comes to technology and issues of exposure, uh, they're teaching us more than, than we're teaching them. What about it's up to the parents, it's that argument, up to the parents? Well, I, I do think parents are, you know, their children's best educator. It's not, it's not either or. I think that, you know, kids get lessons from their parents about sex and gender and morality and ethics, and they also get lessons at school. And it's not that the school undoes the parents' influence. It's, you know, they work, at best, they work together in tandem. And I think that, you know, there are lots of kids who it, you, who don't have those conversations with the, their parents, but do need that information. And and parents always have the option of pulling their kids out of sex ed if they have very strong objections. So, again, I think we school has to be organized around the public good, like what's good for the best for, for most students. And, and sex, a comprehensive sex education is that. How large is the segment that don't want this? I mean, very, is, it, very small. is it a is it a vocal minority is, is it, that's very well organized? Where is this coming from? You know, most studies say that around 85% of parents support really comprehensive sex education. So let's say that that's the case here. I mean, I don't think, I don't know the statistics, but it's a very small, very loud minority. And, you know, we the media plays a role in sort of amplifying those voices. And there is a way in which this, this con- it's sort of a hot button issue, you know, so it allows the premier to sort of play to, um, to kind of earn his conservative creds by, you know, kind of stoking this controversy. But I don't think most parents don't pull their kids out of sex ed. They want schools to have these conversations with their, with their children. There's a wide, widespread support for this curriculum. Are there that know. many yanking their kids out of it? No, not at all. That's the thing. Right. And what so, does that do to a classroom setting when it's time for sex ed and little Jimmy gets yanked out? <laughs> well, I think little Jimmy goes to his friends at recess and says, so what, what did, did I hear? What, what did I miss? Yeah. We have a, not, we, today we learned about hygiene. It was unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's tricky. It's tricky. But I think, you know, you can't pull your kids out of school when they're learning something um, that's that's protected by the human rights code. So you can't say, oh, I don't want my kids to learn anything about LGBT um, people. But you can pull them out of other lessons that are sort of more about sexuality, say. Hmm. Uh, that being said, which movement is, gain- is gaining momentum here? How, how, how is this all going to end, do you think? Well, I think it's going to... I 
Well, I hope that it ends with the government reversing its decision. My feeling and, is we'll end up exactly where we are now. Well, you know, with the last government. My my guess is we're going to end up with something that's pretty close to what we got now. I hope so. But I hope that we don't go through the expense of sort of a sham consultation process. You yeah. know, we have a perfectly good curriculum. It was already revised in light of the last controversy. You know, are we just going to keep replaying this over and over again? We have other things to talk about. Other things are important in education. Is this always a controversy? In other words, every five or 10 years or 15 or 20 years that we decide to revamp this? Because really, at the end of the day, it's like, how much more can you evolve around sex? Uh, but every time we have this discussion, for example, in another 20 years, will we be, will we be having this again? Yeah, I, I think we will. I think whenever sexuality comes close to children or young people, it just makes us really nervous. And um, that, that, that is the place where we have these controversies in education. Is this about religion? Is it about other cultures just not up to speed with Canadians, if no. I can be so blunt? You can be that blunt, and I think that's uh, a, a gross mischaracterization mischaracterization Mm -hmm. that you know this was started this the opposition was started by um conservative christian communities Mm -hmm. and activists it wasn't this isn't about new canadians not being you know getting with canadian values at all in fact is it about religious canadians that have been here for a while well i think religion of course plays a role in how we define our values and our priorities. But I think there's plenty of diversity across religious groups. Mm. I mean, look at the Catholic teachers' organizations have all supported the new curriculum. So it's not... But yeah, um, that was that was not without a little bit of, uh, of elbow bumping as well. I mean, that was a pretty... That was an interesting discussion, too. I think it's good when we have elbow bumping. Yeah. You know, these are important issues. We should bump elbows with each other. We should have really vigorous conversations, you know, and I don't think the conflict itself is a problem. I just think this particular policy decision is disastrous. So in your mind, we can't blame this on um, ethnicity or religious beliefs in any, in any way, that it's it's broader than that? It's I, yeah, I think so. I'm blaming Doug Ford. Mm. <laughs> so, so who's telling him not to do this? Well... I, who's telling him to do this? That's what I want to know. Okay, same question. Who's telling him to do this then? I think he, you know, a small number of um, conservative activists have his ear. And I, I honestly, as I look through the media coverage and look through the debates happening, I haven't seen a very well-organized sort of lobby in favor of this decision. So I don't know who's who supports it. Hmm. Well, everybody, than, again, will just say the religious right or, as I said, ethnicity. Well, I know plenty of religious conservative people who don't support this decision, yeah, so point. I don't... Good point. So how long do you think it will be before we have clarity here? That's a great question. I mean, I, I, I think something will happen this early this fall just because it's... It'll be a know, topic of discussion. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, think that, I think the Ministry of Education will have to respond with some guidelines for teachers or else they're sort of left in the wind, you know? It'll be interesting to see how the government handles this and whether they say, uh, you know what, we goofed here, let's just keep going, we've made some minor modifications, but other than that, it's a go, and rubber stamp it. And, or if they uh, try to take it and relabel it, retype it, do the research over again and present it as their own. They might, I, I mean, they might decide to reverse the decision to 
to revoke the curriculum, but to continue on with consultations. Hmm. Why not? That's a great idea. Yeah. Why not keep this curriculum and in the meantime, go forward with their election promise to consult more widely with parents. Good point. Jen Gilbert has been with us, Associate Professor, Faculty of Education, York University, talking about the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario, telling its members at the annual meeting that uh, if... And you know, the other interesting thing in this is the quote from Sam Hammond, um, uh, advising members to exercise their professional judgment. That doesn't necessarily mean teach the new curriculum, does it? No, I think that, you know, the teachers are the ones who've been missing from this debate, and they use their professional judgment all the time. They're always trying to figure out what's in the best interest of their students. And we have to trust them as professionals to be able to figure this out in their own context, in their own school, in their own grade. Jen Gilbert, Associate Professor, Faculty of Education, York University. Thanks so much, Jen. Much appreciated. No problem. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.